Folks, this is episode 100 of Oscar Mike Radio, and uh, it's a pretty big accomplishment for me. And today I'm with a, a Oscar Mike veteran, uh, veterans advocate, and all around cool woman, cool chick, Mistress Carrie. What is your bidding? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Just a, a, a couple things to, to wrap about it. it is episode 100, and a couple things I kind of want to bounce off. Uh, the first is, you know, a lot of veterans I'm running into are really into creativity. Like they're trying to get their own comedy uh, routine going. They're trying to get their own uh, multimedia company going. And, and it's kind of weird, you know, men and women who practice killing people, for lack of a better term, or, or, or supporting that effort really embrace this. And I was just curious as to uh, why you think that might be. I don't think it's necessarily just a military thing. I think it's a human thing. I mean, the, you know, stand-up comics will tell you that their comedy comes through pain. You know, you look at somebody like Robin Williams who was, who was living through so much pain. John Belushi, same thing. You look at stand-up comics and you see that that's how they processed whatever trauma they had in their life. They brought it out through comedy. There are, you know, actors, musicians. They use it as a, a conduit to get to a healthier place. And so I think it just makes perfect sense that veterans would, you know, use creativity, whether it be art or, uh, you know, film, music, poetry, painting, graphic design, any of those outlets to, um, you know, to try and express themselves. I mean, there's a there's a great project, General Patton's grandson, Ben Patton, has a thing called the Patton's Veterans uh, Project. He, he actually and hit he, me up. Oh, did he really? Yeah, so I'm going to go on the 26th to North Shore Community College and check out uh, what he, he and uh, the veterans produced. Yeah, it's really cool. Oh, you, and okay. they're using film to give a creative outlet to people and they take away whatever kind of technological, you know, hurdle there could be by partnering you up with, with an expert filmmaker. So you don't have to know how to frame the shot, right? You don't have to know how to edit the video. You just have to say, this is my idea and this is kind of how I see putting it together. And then they pair you up with someone that can help you facilitate your vision. And it's a means to, you know, communicate how you're feeling, to tell your story in a way that you control the message. And I think it's really interesting. I know the VA is looking at it as a way um, to provide therapy for veterans, and it's a really powerful tool, but it, it is exactly what you're talking about. It's this creative outlet to funnel all of those feelings into something that is then physically in front of you that it's been manifested and then you can deal with it because then it's not in your head anymore now it's in front of you it actually exists i think it's fascinating it really is some some of the guys i've talked to who would not talk about their feelings or had trouble articulating what what was going on inside their head right were able to in a very short time frame make the first step by being able to communicate that idea without knowing all the technical ins and outs and start a domino effect in their lives. So it's just a very interesting thing that they're allowing themselves to feel and do. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, yeah, he hit me up and 
and we're going to check this out. And he's like, hey, you got any ideas? I'm like, yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a couple ideas, and uh, we'll see what happens. So, uh, yeah, I just was curious because more and more that I do this podcast, I meet veterans who are, tr- and they're willing to try anything, whether it's uh, pottery, expressive painting, uh, you know, silent dance. Uh, they're, they're open to doing this where the, the stereotype is they might not be as, as flexible to try new things. I don't even think it's just the veterans. I'm starting to see a lot of articles now about, you know, Western medicine being open to, you know, anything from marijuana to um, hallucinogenics. I mean, there's even people talking about how PTSD could be treated through things like ayahuasca. I mean, I think people are finally getting to understand that they don't understand the brain fully. Nobody does. And so if you can find something and you're willing to try it and it's and it works, then who is anybody to kind of get in the way of that recovery with whatever manner you choose to try and recover? Whatever it is, uh, whether it's uh, horses or dogs or or painting or yoga, uh, power breathing meditation, there's a ton of stuff out there that people are more open to now than they were 20 years ago. And it's, it's really amazing because now you're starting to see how veterans aren't so broken. Yeah, there's still problems, but they have a way to cope, whereas before they didn't. I also think that they're going to be on the forefront. I think just the way that our veterans have been on the forefront when it comes to research for things like prosthetics. I mean, you saw it right here in Boston after the marathon bombing. You know, the the victims of the bombing were still recovering in the hospital, and some of the first people that came in to visit them were veterans on their prosthetics to show them that just because you lost your leg, don't give up hope. We're here to tell you that you're going to be fine. And all of that research, that medical research, it comes up on my podcast all the time that so many things when it comes to medicine have been pushed forward because the veterans have needed those pushes, whether it be, you know, technology like quick clot in the field or, you know, um, uh, inventions with, when it comes to prosthetics and they're talking about brain mapping. I think the veterans are, are you know, t- for lack of a better analogy, the tip of the spear. And I think that all of these non-traditional treatments, whatever it is, the art therapy, the equine therapy, meditation, Reiki, all of that stuff, if the veterans are willing to try it and it works, just imagine all of the regular everyday Americans that are going to follow them through the doorway when they say, no, we tried it. It worked for us. Here, let me hold the door open for you. It's, it's, it's a movement. And, of course, just like always, our veterans are leading the charge. So do you have anything going on in the vet space right now um, compared to you know, the last couple of times? I, I see that there's a lot of stuff going on. You talked to um, one guy who I think we both know, Richard Fitz Jr.'s um, a documentary about his dad. I mean, what was that like talking to him? What a fascinating guy. What an amazing story. And again, it's not just a veterans-based story. It's a human experience story. This is a story of a guy that grew up not knowing his dad because he was killed in action when he was two years old. And so if you take that part of the story out, If you take the fact that his dad was a Green Beret on a classified mission in Laos out of the equation, it's a story of a man that's going back trying to find out 
about his dad so that he can in turn find out about himself and pass that on to his own son. That's a human story. That's part of the human existence. And the fact that his dad was such a hero and and just did all of these amazing things and that, you know, when when Richard came in to do my podcast, he was telling me that he has one memory of his dad, just one. Yeah. And and it's amazing to I can't even fathom that because my life is filled with memories. And, you know, he was telling me that he has an audio tape that his dad had made for his own father, you know, Richard's grandfather, and that they did some work on the audio. And and so he knows what his dad's voice sounds like now. And I think, you know, for anybody that's ever lost anyone too soon, especially if you were at a younger age, you just have this thirst for knowledge and for self-discovery. Anybody, I mean, have you ever seen that TV show, you know, who do you think you are? And they do the the celebrities and they do their, you know, genealogy history. I think as a human, you always wonder who I am and where did I come from? And so Richard is trying to answer that very question. And the fact that he's doing it through research of his father's service and interviewing guys that were on those missions with him and going back through military records. It's a fascinating story. I've only seen a little bit of the film, but I am, I am so excited to see it when it's done, to just sit in a theater and just watch what has been his life's passion and to see it completed and up on a screen. I mean, what an accomplishment for someone, you know, that this passion project, just like we were talking about, to, to make a physical manifestation of something that was in your head. It's, that's exactly what Richard's doing, except he's not the veteran He's making it about the veteran. Absolutely. But the thing talking to Richard, I don't, is I really got that for, for a lot of the hoopla, I shouldn't say hoopla, a lot of the attention around the issue with his parents and his mother, or his grandparents and his mother, excuse me, he was kind of left out to a large extent. If you listen to him and watch some of the video, it wasn't until they brought uh, his father's body back to Abington and he was handed a flag really to see him kind of on the forefront. And, and he told me that, you know, a lot of it was very conflicting to him because he really didn't, he was trying to process all this stuff at the same time. And, and you're right. It was a very, it, it gripped me. Some parts of the film I got to watch were like, wow. I mean, I don't know how I would feel if my dad was like that. I never got to meet him. It, it just really, some parts that really made me sit there and say, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to have my parents in my life. I don't know what you went through. Well, it's just, I mean, if you lost a parent at the age of two, right? you know, to an accident or an illness, it would be crushing for anyone. But to lose a parent in a classified op overseas so that even what he was doing and where he was couldn't be released? How do you grow up with that many questions that cannot be answered, that the government just can't tell you, and that your grandparents and your mom are also, they're trying to shelter you from the pain of just losing a parent in general, you know, to... I can't even begin to put myself in his shoes. And the fact that he has grown up and now is is trying to, in a constructive, artistic, 
historical, respectful way, figure out his own history. And he, and he told me that it was spearheaded by not being able to answer his own son's questions about his grandfather, Richard's dad. You know, what, what a, what a testament to his role as a father himself. And where does that come from growing up without a father? That, that he, it, it's amazing. Yeah, he's just a really special, special guy to talk to. Really interesting, uh, project. And it's not just, I'm going to make this, try to get some awards or money. This was not about that. I got the feeling this, this fills several gaping holes in his life and his, in his soul. And once he was able to understand what his dad was doing and what he went through, this kind of gave him some closure to then move on and tell the story to other people. It's just a very unique project that we're starting to see people do, especially you know, I really feel that the Vietnam vets and the Korean vets get left out of the picture a lot of times. There's just not the uh, the good optics on them that there are other conflicts. And so to hear what his father was involved with and the type of men he served with was really special as well. I think closure is the perfect word. I think that when Richard gets this film done and when he shares it with the world and when you know, men that served with his father see it, when his own family sees it, when his own son sees it. I think that that is a legacy that he leaves for his family, that he was willing to do all of the work to fill in all the holes, to, to stitch up all the gaps. And I think it's something that is going to be looked at for years to come as this passion project that only he could do. You know, other people could have tried to have made a film about his father, but to have it be done and done the right way, he's the only son. He's the only child. And and it's his legacy to pass on. And I, I think I was so struck by his story. And after meeting him and, you know, and 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 seeing all of the work that he's done. And, and like you said, he's not asking for money. He's not trying to get rich off of it. He's not trying to benefit from his father's sacrifice, he's he's doing it, financing it himself, just trying to answer the questions, just just get some answers, and to also memorialize his dad. You know, I've talked to many Gold Star family members, and they say that your loved ones die twice. They die the first time in combat, and the second time when no one speaks their name anymore. And so I think Richard's also trying to keep his father from passing away a second time and doing everything that he can to keep that from happening by keeping his name alive. It's very powerful. Extremely powerful story. And, and it's just one of the reasons why I, I, I like as a, as a military guy myself and serving that I like doing this podcast. It, you know, people ask me why I do this. And I'm like, it's, it's four stories like that that I feel are, are really worthy. And it's not just a money grab or a, a chest thumping experience. Hey, I got this thing I'm trying to do. It's different. I've never, I've never seen anybody try to do something like this before. Uh, certainly, there's been biographies of family members and stuff like that, but not like this. Not when you're two years old and your dad passes, and then almost, you know, what, 20, 25 years later, you find out all this stuff happened, and then another, add another couple of years on that to try to even concept this. So I just, um, it really struck home to me. You know, there's still medals that his dad hasn't received yet that, you know, other guys that his dad served with had received for missions before the one 
where he was killed. And so, you know, his, his, Richard's also just trying to get the record straight, too, and make sure that his dad gets all of the, you know, the accolades and all of the things that he deserves. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, just a, a great story, a local story, and one of those good ones. Um, I'd like to shift focus. I just want to bounce this idea off to you. There, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> it's it's good. It's good. I Trust me, it's good. Trust me. Um, there's this guy. He's an Air Force veteran. He's retired, and he's a single dad, and he started this organization called Operation Teammate, and what he's done is he's gotten with places like the Charlotte Hornets and the Masters and like the University of Georgia Bulldogs. He's a big Bulldogs fan. And he's created this thing where he calls it impactful athlete interaction, where he'll take children of, of military people who are serving, like right now, deployed overseas, and take them to these events. Not just take them to the ball game, woohoo, we had a good time, but have them meet the athletes, and, and you know, especially the, the, the collegiate athletes, and talk about the challenges of staying on the straight and narrow, not getting into trouble, and... and He's starting to get some traction with his organization, but also some of the kids he's served. And I just want to bounce it off of you because I'm, I'm sitting there thinking to myself as I'm talking to him, I'm like, no one's doing that right now. No one really thinks about the kids when you're deployed over 10,000 miles away. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what do you look for in somebody who's trying something new in the veteran space or in the charitable space in general? Well... I look for people that are doing it for the right reasons. Okay. You know, I think I think when it comes to any organization, and it doesn't even have to be veteran or military based, I think with any kind of charitable organization that's asking for anything from you, especially money and financial support, is you want to know what they're doing with the money and that and and that they're doing things for the right reasons and that they're not just doing it for a photo op or they're not doing it you know, for a big six-figure salary to, to be, you know, the chairperson or whatever. Um, I, I think that, you know, people that start organizations that are that are not charity-based, and, and I don't mean that charity is bad. I mean the definition of charity where you're just giving something and not expecting anything back. I think, you know, like the example you're giving me, I don't think that that benefits just the kids because this is a mutual exchange here. So you get those kids who are growing up without a parent because their parents deployed, right? right? right. But then you get the athletes who have been, you know, on the front page of every newspaper for however long now. And you get those athletes paired up with kids who then watch firsthand the struggles of a child that is growing up because their parent is selflessly serving their nation. I see that as, as a win-win on both sides because I think, and I see it in my industry, you know, I'm very well aware of my position, what a seat in the climate controlled studio in the WAF studio that I sit in every day. I know how lucky I am to have the job that I have. I joke all the time that, you know, when I was driving trucks and building stages that I had a real job that I really worked for a living. But at the end of the day, unless you're, you know, unless you're serving, unless you're running into a burning building, unless you're actively curing cancer, there are jobs that you do for entertainment. And then there are people that are actually solving the world's problems. 
And I don't think any athlete would say I'm solving the world's problems here. I think any athlete that has an ounce of wit in their head would say, yeah, you know what? I'm living my dream. I get to, I get to play this game and follow my passion and I'm doing it because I'm given this opportunity to do it in this country, by this team, by the school, whatever it is. So I look for an organization that's doing exactly what you're describing, which is, you know what? These kids could use this guidance, could use these, these role models because their parent is away. But I also think that those athletes and the exposure to those kids, those blue star kids, I think that's an incredibly powerful life lesson as well. And a life lesson I think most Americans need. The, yeah, the University of Georgia Bulldogs kind of took this organization underneath their arm to the point where now they've had, you know, events at baseball games, football games, and gymnastics games. And the coaches have told this guy, you know, I've seen the emails where, like, our kids got something out of bringing these kids there. When they're griping about practice or having to do homework, they're like, you know, my, my dad's a phone call away. I couldn't imagine having my, my mom or dad on a ship in the middle of the ocean. I don't know where they are. It really is that, uh, that, that thing. And this is the kind of stuff that I like to see people do. And just as a bonus, it's a Air Force guy who doesn't know anything about doing a nonprofit, but he's just trying to do it. It's just great. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I, you know, there are, there are all of these videos circling around the internet of, um, how powerful it can be for, uh, in the elderly community, especially those that are in nursing homes. And there have been experiments where they've put a nursery school inside a nursing home so that the older generation, um, have all these little kids running around playing games with them and that it helps the older person with, you know, mobility and helps them to keep their mental clarity and that it helps the little kids as well because they have these people that are just so filled with joy that are so thankful that those little kids are around. And so, you know, to go back to your original question is what do I look for in an organization like that? The, that's the exact thing. It's it's mutually beneficial for both, but everybody benefits. Right, of it. right. You know, that you're not just – I'm not trying to say un sound ungrateful that someone writes a check and makes a donation to an organization and that's where they leave it because your financial generosity with a lot of these organizations is absolutely essential. Everything. But but when you actually get in there and you get involved and you donate your time and you become a part of it, you benefit from it as much as the person you're trying to help. I know from my own work that as much work as I do to try and help our veterans and advocate on their behalf, I know that just being around them enriches my life and me as a person. And that it's helped me so much. Just it makes me a better person. I believe it makes me a better American. I believe it makes me more grounded. It makes me more self-aware. I just think that over Oh, I benefit from it, but that's not why I do it necessarily. But the fact that it makes me feel good, well, that's fantastic. So, so do you have anything going on in the veteran space coming up or that you've been working on or, or is it just kind of like in a steady state right now? Um, well, I've been doing a lot of work with 22 kill, okay. um, who now has an office, uh, in, or we're getting ready to open up a brick and mortar office soon in Massachusetts, but we're going to be covering all of new England. 
Um, we're getting ready to have our third annual veteran skydiving event, which is coming up at the end of the month, June 30th. And um, we raise money and we take out 22 veterans and take them skydiving. So whether they have never jumped, whether they jumped in the military but have never jumped on the civilian side, um, we just take them out jumping and then we get a bunch of other slots that like their friends, family members, any other people can pay to jump with them. Um, but the veterans jumps, the 22 of them anyway, are at no cost to the veteran. And what we're noticing, I mean, the first year we did it, we had 22 veterans. The second year we did it, we had like 34. Uh, we've already got almost 50 people registered now, 22 of the free slots that we fundraise for, but then a bunch of other veterans that were like, you know what? I have a great job. I don't mind paying my way, but I want to be part of the event. And then there's sons, daughters, wives, husbands, co-workers, cousins that are like, you know what? I want to come and jump with, you know, the veterans as well. And there's a couple things that we've noticed. Number one, that adrenaline search that so many veterans are seeking when they come home because they haven't been able to find it in any other way other than a deployment or a firefight. They can find it in a controlled, state activity like skydiving. But um, – that it's also uh, a camaraderie-based thing, a team-building thing, where they're now all of a sudden at an event surrounded by veterans from uh, different conflicts, different branches, different MOSs. But one thing that was really interesting is that there's a disproportionate number of female veterans that are getting involved with this event now. And we 22 Kill has really made it a focus to um, – you know, do a lot of outreach work when it comes to female veterans who for a long time were overlooked. And so for a skydiving event to attract this many female veterans, we're like, this is the first year that it was a disproportionate number. And that's pretty interesting. And I think that moving forward, you know, it could be a real avenue towards getting those female veterans involved more in the overall veteran community. Well, you work with them closer than I have. I, I haven't worked with female veterans that much compared to males, but one of the things I was, I had a female veteran tell me mistress is you think the guys are hard to get opened up and, and talking to somebody else. We females, because there's so few of us really close ranks and won't open up period. And it, is, it was very challenging sometimes to try to get on their level. And the first thing is I'm a guy. The second thing is I don't know what they've gone through. And, and so I think this is great that they, they have uh, their own demons they're trying to, uh, to conquer. Or as one guy told me, it's like you stare into the abyss. And I can certainly understand that. So I guess that's, that's cool. And, you know, some people ask me, is 22 Kill a legit organization? I said, yeah, I think they are. I mean, I, I pulled their 990s and look at how they spent the money and it, it it looked for real. And I'm just curious, you know, from an organizational standpoint, they seem to have all their ducks in line. Yeah, they do. And I wouldn't be involved with it if I didn't believe in their mission. And, you know, there's people like Jacob Schick that, um, you know, he's a highly respected veteran. Um that's just done so much work and is incredibly charismatic, very blunt, very to the point, uh, who's been very honest and, and upfront about his own struggles. And 
you know, is, is that person that's like, you know what? Yeah, we, we need to solve this. And he's very aware that veterans need to be involved in it, but he's also very quick to say, but you know what? This is a problem that need, that everybody needs to get involved in because when, especially when it comes to suicide, especially this week, it's not just a, a, a veteran issue. Again, just like what we were talking about at the start of this podcast, veterans are on the tip of the spear of it. But the suicide problem in the United States is not exclusive to our veteran population. But our veterans are now the ones moving the bar. They're the ones pushing the discussion to the forefront, and they have been for years. And now with, you know, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, People are, you know, finally looking back. I mean, we've seen it in the music industry with Chester Bennington recently and Chris Cornell. And, you know, you've seen it in, in um, entertainment with people like Robin Williams where you just go, wait a minute. You know, Anthony Bourdain was the one that really kind of shook me a little bit because anytime anybody would ask me, they're like, oh, you have a dream job. You must love your job. You must think it's amazing. If there were another job you could do besides the one you have, what would it be? And I always said Anthony Bourdain because I have such a thirst for travel and and I just love to immerse myself in the music and the wine and the food and the people. And, you know, I don't want to travel and go to a foreign country and eat at McDonald's. I want to go and and see the things that the locals see. And I was a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. And it was heart wrenching for me, especially someone that works so closely with veterans trying to combat the veteran suicide issue that someone like Anthony Bourdain that I watched on TV every week could have been battling those very same things. And me just as a fan sitting on my couch had no idea. And so, you know, the fact that veterans are moving the discussion to the forefront, that they are willing to say, yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I'm strong. Yes, I'm powerful. No, I'm not broken, but I am struggling, I think is a lesson that is going to reverberate all the way through the human experience. And everyone in society is going to be able to benefit and learn from our veterans standing up and saying, I need help. And so for me, an organization like 22 Kill, no brainer. And this skydiving event, I mean, we had one female veteran. She was airborne in the 80s and got so injured on a jump that it actually medically retired her. And she had not been up in a plane since the 80s. Oh, wow. And she, and she hated that this fear was controlling her. And so she went and jumped. And, and the tandem master took extra care. She was very aware of, of her history and of her fears. And now she comes back every year to jump because she loved it so much. It, brought, it lit this light inside of her again. It took away that fear. It took away the pain. Um, That's amazing. Failed jump took her military career away. It gave her a fear that she couldn't shake and to see her skydive. You know, there's a guy that registered for the jump this year that changed his MOS because he was a parachute rigger and he lost his best friend in a skydiving accident in the military, in a jumping accident, and completely got out of parachute rigging in the military because he just couldn't and he hasn't jumped since. And he reached out to 22 Kill and said, I want in on this jump. And, and, you know what? That one story is worth it. 
that one story and just seeing the way, even if they never jump again, to see these lights get turned back on and these people that, that all of a sudden are like, oh, hell yeah. Like I'm alive yes. again. Yes. You know, that, that to me, you know, I'm really hoping that this, that what we've done is we've partnered with a drop zone and we're trying to cultivate a veterans community on that drop zone so that veterans that do want to get into skydiving, but say, don't know anybody else that does won't be so intimidated by coming to the drop zone themselves because they're going to know there's a built-in veterans community there waiting for them. So that if nobody else they know wants to go skydiving, that they can go, you know what, I'm going to go and get my license and I'm going to start being a jumper and I'm going to find a home at this drop zone because there's already a community of veterans there waiting for me. And I really, really believe, and it's not just because I've been a skydiver for 20 years and that it's a passion of mine um, and that I know it's helped me through the struggles in my own life. But I just believe in this program because I've seen it in action and I've seen them when they land and they're different than they were 20 minutes before when they got on the plane. They're just different people. And you can see it in their videos and in their pictures of their skydive that they just they, – they're just beaming and they're so alive. And even if they never jump again, they take that passion back into their lives, into their families, into their jobs, into their other hobbies. And if it lights a torch in them to pay it forward and get more involved in the community and to give it forward, I think anything we can do – to, to move people that way, the more the better. So it's like a baptism by air. I mean, you, you, Seriously, they, they, totally they, they go in the plane one way and they get risen. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes. It happened with me. The first skydive that I made changed my life. And, and so, you know, I, I hate to sound like a, like a cult member or a drug dealer, but I'm like, no, 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 really. You got to try it. You got to try it. But it does work. Well, I'll tell you what, um, as we wind down time, I, I've wanted to jump for a long time. I'm going to figure this out and maybe uh, we'll make this happen. Yeah, I'll let you know everything you need to know. And uh, I think it would be great for you. I encourage anybody to go out and do it because the voice in your head that's telling you no is the exact voice that tells you no for everything that tells you you can't get that promotion, that tells you you can't get that girl's phone number, that tells you you can't lose 10 pounds, that tells you that you can't climb that mountain. It's all the same voice. And if you conquer and win a battle in the war with that voice, you've moved the line forward. And I think it's something that will help you in every other aspect of your life. Well, there, there's a lot of voices in my head telling me this podcast is a bad idea. You know, what do you, what do you know about podcasting or audio engineering? And, and it was the safe thing would have been to do something else. But, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I just, I'm like, okay, if I can do this and we're, we're doing number 100, I can do anything. You can do anything. Absolutely. So... I have a great story for you right. before I know you got to run, but the last time you and I talked, we were talking about my trip overseas that oh, never yes, happened. Yes. So I have an update. All right. So the guys that I was supposed to get embedded with came home all safe and sound. Nice. And, uh, I don't know, maybe six, eight weeks ago, um, I got a message from one of the guys and he said, I'm going to be in Boston and you promised me a drink <laughs> and I have some things for you. So can we meet up? And I was like, oh, my God, absolutely. I can't wait to meet you. I feel like I know this person because we spent months and months corresponding trying to put this trip together. 
So I have a room in my house. Uh, I don't know if I told you about it, but I call it the war room. And it's kind of taken a life of its own. Uh, it's got a bar in it. It's got shelves that are filled with all of the different um, things I've brought back from my military trips. And it's filled with pictures of all of the family members I've been able to research throughout my family that have served in the military. And, you know, anytime I do anything with a military organization or a different branch, anything that I'm lucky enough to receive from them, it just all goes in this room. And it's, and anytime any of my guys come over the house and they want to sit down with a glass of scotch and, you know, swap stories or whatever, we always sit in the war room. So I had told this guy from the unit, um, you know, hey, I owe you a drink in the war room. And so he took me up on it. So he called me. So we met up for dinner because I was like, I'm not cooking for you, but, you know, we'll <laughs> for dinner. And uh, so we met up for dinner and he was like, am I getting that drink in the war room? Because I have something to donate to the war room. So there's a rule when you come to my house and you hang out in the war room. The first time you come as a guest, the second time you come, you have to come with something that you're willing to leave behind. And so those shelves in the war room are filled with things that people have left behind from their service, trinkets, a, a compass, a, a patch, um, you know, a coin, whatever it is. They just – everybody leaves something. So he was like, I have something for the war room. So I was like, great. So he came to my house. I poured him a really good glass, a really good scotch, and we sat down, and he pulled this bag out, and he started pulling out – things that he had brought home from this deployment that I was supposed to meet him on. And so he pulled out um, uh, a Syrian flag, oh, wow. a, Syrian, a Syrian resistance flag, some other flags that I'm not allowed to talk about that are unit specific. Um, while I should have been with the unit, they went out on a mission um, against ISIS. I'm allowed to say that now. Um, that wasn't confirmed when we were trying to put the trip together. Um, but they knew they were going out in a battle and they knew it was against ISIS. And he said, you know, had you been with us, we would have left you on the FOB because there's no way we were going to take you out knowing is one thing if we bump into trouble with you, you know, with you with us, but it's another thing to go looking for the trouble and to take you into it purposefully. So he's like, we would have left you on the FOB, but they went out, they did what they had to do. And when they came back on the FOB, they were talking about how I should have been there then and that I wasn't there to celebrate a successful mission with them. So they flew an American flag on the FOB for me that day. Oh, that's cool. And and so they folded up – he folded up this American flag and he pulled it out of the bag and he, and he gave it to me. And I was like, oh, my God. And any flag that any, anybody's ever flown in my honor and, and presented to me, and I've been lucky enough to receive a few over the years, I always fly it in front of my house, even if it's just for a day, just, just because I, I want to fly it at my house. And then I fold it back up again and, and save it. Um, so to know that that flag that was flown on a fob in Syria – that, you know, was flown after a successful battle against ISIS, and now I'm going to hang it in front of my house is amazing. So he's like, I have one more thing in this bag. What do you hope it is? And I was like, well, well, I don't, I don't want to say what I hope it is because I don't want you to think that I would be disappointed by anything you would give me because I'm already awestruck and grateful and humbled at everything you've already given me. And he's like, come on. If you could have one thing in this war room that I know for certain you do not have, what would it be? 
And I just looked at him and I gave him this grin and I was like, did you bring me an ISIS flag? Because that's what I want. Because nothing would piss those pricks off more than this purple haired yes. American female journalist having one of their trophies in yes. my house. And he pulled an ISIS flag yes. out of his bag. And I was like, are you kidding me? And they won this battle and took out all of those terrorists in that battle that day that I should have been with them, at least over there with them on the fob that day. And when the deal, when the deed was done and the battle was over, he took one of the ones that you see on the antennas of their vehicles, right, the right, smaller right. flags, and put that in his pocket and brought it home for me. That's awesome. And I said, oh, my God, are you sure that you don't want this? Like, I feel bad taking it from you. I want it. <laughs> God knows I want it. But I feel bad taking it from you. And then he just looked at me and he gave me his own grin and he goes, I took a big one. <laughs> and so I looked at him and I'm holding this thing in my hand and it's cheaply made and hand painted and it and it and it represents everything in this life that I despise. And I know that I represent everything in this life that they fight to eradicate and I'm holding it in my house. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I just looked at him and I said, how the hell am I going to get this framed? Because you can't take an ISIS flag to Michael's craft shop and get it framed. And he goes, you know what? Not my problem. It was my job to get it for you. You figure it out. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. So I have the this gift. And I brought it to work. And it's really because I wanted my bosses, the only few people in the office that were in the know when it came to trying to put this trip together. I wanted them to see this flag. I wanted them to understand that everything that we had tried to do and put together wasn't for nothing. You know what I mean? And it's very interesting the uh, the response you get when you walk into someone's office carrying an ISIS flag. One person didn't want it in the office at all, like it had like bad juju or something and like didn't didn't want it in the office at all. One person um, wanted to just to just touch it like they. They like they needed that physical manifestation of evil. And then one person asked if they could step on it. Wow. OK, that's that's pretty intense. Yeah. And, and I was like, you know what? Yeah. Why not? I stepped on it, too. Why not? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> so I just wanted to kind of put, you know, the period on the end of the sentence, because you and I had spent so much time talking about that trip that that you know, it never trip. happened. A lot went into it. And so for me, you know, I mean, we started this whole thing talking about closure for me to be sitting in my war room with this guy that I had tried to put this trip together and to know and to have it confirmed. I don't know everything that they were doing over there, but obviously when somebody hands you an ISIS flag, you have an idea. And to know that, you know, this person I was corresponding with was really there, that this person is real. And that they really did what they said they were doing or what they couldn't say what they were doing at the time. And then to know that all of those guys made it home safe and then to have him sitting in my house, however many months later, and for him to hand this, this trophy to me was incredibly powerful for me. It was very humbling and, and just, 
I, it's so hard to put into words how it made me feel. And I knew that after the long conversation you and I had that you would appreciate the story to kind of know well, how it ended. For, for me, I got to tell you, it's like you telling me back in the old days when the Vikings would take the, the, the skulls of their enemies and drink meat out of them. That's, <laughs> that's the vibe I'm getting, and I love it. Yeah. I love it because you're right. Yeah. They they are against everything that you stand for, so it's just it's it's sweet, and, and the fact that they all came home is just a, a really good thing. So uh, I'm just blown away. Thanks for sharing. It, yeah, they. I can't talk about who they are, or where they are, or exactly where they were, or whatever. But if any of those guys are listening to this podcast, then I'm going to be sure to pass it around so that they know I was talking about them. Uh, they'll be getting a pretty good chuckle out of this because. Uh, you know, they all love their job. And, you know, I think there is a certain there's a certain amount of laughter that that comes when you, you know, are fighting those guys. And then you take that trophy home and you present it to the purple haired girl in her war room. Like <laughs> it's kind of a poetic way to end the whole thing, you know, and uh, and it's pretty badass. But I'll tell you, it, it's a little weird having it in the house. And I have not yet figured out how I'm going to display it, where exactly I'm going to put it. Because it, it, it's a very weird thing to have. It stands for nothing but pure evil. I would assume it's like a World War II veteran coming home with, you know, with, with Nazi memorabilia. That it just is it, – it's nothing but pure evil and hatred and that you have it. And just you possessing it goes against everything that it stands for, you know, because that flag's not flying anymore. It's in my house now. Screw you, assholes. <laughs> yeah, but isn't isn't well because you, you know my grandpa had some Japanese stuff, and and he did it to remind himself about what he fought for, and then to tell his you know my my parents and us grandkids you know this is what happened and why, and it made what we learned in history books a lot more real. So, it's a reminder. I think. I mean, my view would be. This is a symbol of the tyranny and oppression and all the evil in the world that we, we as a country, we as a nation took away. There's some light because of what we did. I don't know. I mean, that's just. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. I think that it is a physical history lesson right there in your hands. It's, it's tangible. And, you know, just like with a lot of the other things that I've brought back from my trips, um, I plan to, when I go out and do speaking engagements and this kind of stuff, I think it's important for just regular civilians to, to see these things because it's one thing to watch the news and to see, you know, the clips of the ISIS propaganda videos that get put up on the Internet and the atrocities and war crimes and just the crimes against humanity that they've committed. But then to see the flag in person makes it so real. And it, 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 it's impossible for it to not give you a physical response. Like you can almost feel your heart rate go up just seeing it because it's real. Yeah, like, like, like in three dimensions. So it's right there. Yes. Yeah. There's a difference between, you know, watching old um, World War II footage of Hitler and sitting down with someone that freed Jews camp world war ii hero and hearing the story from them firsthand totally different and i think it's the same thing and that was kind of the experience that i had sitting down with this guy over a glass of scotch and him telling me the story of the battle that's just badass it's just fucking it's totally badass. badass 
totally this guy is such a badass that like i will have to drink milk for the rest (laughs) of my life with just the hope and fantasy that i will someday grow up to be a shred of the badass that this guy is right now that's awesome but i i knew that you would love Uh, this no no that 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 made all this worth it. And, and there's a picture of it up on my Facebook page. If you go to the Mistress Carrie oh, Facebook page, and there's a picture of it on my Instagram of it of it laid out with the American folded flag on top of it, and then I believe there's a um, the Syrian resistance flag is with it. Those were the only things that I could show um, that he gave me. But it's it's pretty cool, and I wanted to make sure that I framed it, like, well, not framed it, but that I, I took a picture of it the way that I did because I would never, like, I can't just take a picture of an ISIS flag and put it up on Instagram because people will freak out because <laughs> they'll take it out of context. Like the Elizabeth they Warren. Won't even read, yeah, they wouldn't even read the description of what the picture was about. So I She's an ISIS lover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I'm some kind of sympathizer or like, you know, yearning to be an ISIS bride or some shit. So I put the American flag on top of it and whatever so that people understood like these were items that were given to me. And uh, and it, you know, so you can go and see the picture and whatever, but it's uh, it's pretty crazy. And it's a prized possession of mine now. And the fact that on that day, so far away from home. A bunch of guys literally went out and looked death right in the face and looked pure evil in the eyes. And on that day, for a moment, they thought about me and bringing me something home. I mean, seriously, there isn't a there isn't a. And you're you one know, of the crew. You're one of them. That's that's. But to to even have them think of me in that way, even if it was for five seconds that day, is so humbling to me, and I am honored to be in their company. And it's. You know, just the fact that they even are willing to accept me in whatever way, shape, or form that they are is a gift for me. Well, all I can say is, you know, I enjoy hearing these kind of stories. I enjoy our time together, not only as a professional like yourself, but also as someone who advocates for veterans. And it just makes, you know, this is the this is the fun part of, of what we do. And so, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, of course. We'll be Happy uh, Centennial. Centennial, I guess. I guess. Best of guests to come. Yeah. Uh, one day we'll have to uh, maybe ride the motorcycles together. I don't know. I'm glad. Hell yeah. Uh, my, my bike is lonely sometimes. But, uh, no, I just appreciate what you do for my brothers and sisters, and I, I just like the direction that we're going. And uh, thanks again. And uh, keep being badass. Keep being that purple-haired chick in Boston <laughs> who, you know, hey, like you said, you know, you hate us because you ain't us. And yeah. that's the best way to be. Well, if you don't want to jump out of the plane, you can get on your bike and you can ride out to the drop zone and cheer on the people we are throwing out of the plane. So consider yourself invited. Yes, ma'am. Congratulations on your big milestone. A hundred podcasts is awesome, and here's to a hundred more. You got it, and you'll be on again. And uh, guys, this is it. Anytime. We are out. Omar is one hundred. <laughs>